This episode is brought to you by the Colorado Northwestern Community College. Join them for two weeks digging up dinosaur bones from the Jurassic period in Northwest Colorado this summer. For details, go to cncc.edu slash dinodig. As you write your life story, you're far from finished. Are you looking to close the book on your job? Maybe turn a page in your career. Be Continued at the Georgetown University School of Continuing Studies. Our professional master's degrees and certificates are designed to meet you where you are and take you where you want to go. At Georgetown SCS, the learning never stops, and neither do you. Write your next chapter. Be continued at scs.georgetown.edu slash podcast. Hello and welcome to I Know Dino. I'm Garrett. And I'm Sabrina. And today we'll be doing something a little bit different. Since this is a previously recorded episode, you'll be listening to it a few weeks after we record it. And so we're not going to talk about the news. Instead, we're going to do a review of one of our favorite dinosaur museums, as well as a discussion about another dinosaur that was discovered last year called Changuraptor. So first, we're going to start out with a review of the Black Hills Institute in South Dakota. We've mentioned the Black Hills Institute previously when we were talking with Pete Larson in our very first episode, and we mentioned the documentary Dinosaur 13, which talks about their discovery of the large T-Rex skeleton Sioux and the ensuing legal troubles. But there's still a ton to see at the Black Hills Institute, even though they don't have Sioux anymore. The Black Hills Institute is located kind of by Sturgis and Deadwood in South Dakota. You've probably heard of those cities before. And the Black Hills are best known for Mount Rushmore and Crazy Horse. Both of those huge sculptures out of the rock are located really close, actually, to the museum. So the museum building portion of the Black Hills Institute is in... I think what used to be a school theater. If it's not, it's very much that style of building. So it's got, you know, kind of a not so wide room, but very long. And then it's got a little stage on one end of it. And the stage is kind of fun because they've repurposed it to store all of their aquatic life fossils. And then there are some things kind of extending past the edge of the stage that are suspended from the ceiling. So it's a pretty neat use of it. And although they have lots of awesome dinosaur fossils, they also have a lot of other interesting geological items. So they have a collection of agates, meteorites, and minerals as well. And a lot of them are in this gem room area, which is in just the corner of that theater-type room. And when we were there, it was a pretty warm day, so they had a little fan trying to circulate air through it, but it had lots of really cool gems and things in it. The aquatic life that I mentioned a minute ago has a huge turtle suspended from the ceiling, just enormous, and it's fun to go underneath it and look up at it and see just how huge it was. And there's also some of those dinosaur-like reptiles that people who aren't real familiar with dinosaurs always confuse with dinosaurs but are just, you know, reptiles from that same era. 
And then there's lots of other interesting fossils and displays on the walls and hanging from the ceiling. So even if you're not a dinosaur enthusiast like us, there's a lot to see there. In the dinosaur vein, there's one wall of the museum, which was one of my favorite exhibits. It's got a whole row of T-Rex skulls. And below each one, there's a little placard saying what the specimen is. And then I think it also tells you where you can currently find it. But if not, you can look up the specimen and see where it is. And they have a lot of them there. Part of that is because the Black Hills Institute is known for all their T-Rex discoveries. And there's also a touchbone, which is kind of a, a standard feature of a lot of these smaller museums that you'll find in like Montana and the Dakotas, Utah, places like that. I don't remember if they have them at big museums like the Smithsonian and the American Museum of Natural History. Sometimes they'll have a little piece of fossil you can touch. But at these smaller museums, they tend to have like a whole femur of a sauropod or something that you can like grab onto, which is a lot of fun. And they definitely have one of those. The best part of the museum, though, is definitely the center of the theater type room. So what they did is they kind of put all of the dinosaurs together in one small area. It's similar to the setup that they have at the Smithsonian. I think they're redoing it now, but you can go on either side of this big group of posed dinosaurs and really get a good view of them from all sorts of angles. The American Museum of Natural History has it in a few places too, but they tend to do one at a time. This is like all of them kind of jammed into one little place. They just kind of have a rope around it. It, it feels so informal, and you, when you're used to going to a place like the Smithsonian or the American Museum of Natural History, and there are big columns, and you know everything's like granite, and marble and huge vaulted ceilings and the lighting is just so and everything. It's really fun to go to one of these smaller museums where it just feels like someone bought it because they loved archaeology and paleontology. And that's really what they did. In the documentary Dinosaur 13, they show the origins of the Black Hills Institute and how it was like a family that loved dinosaurs and all of the archaeology that went into it and they bought this place because they wanted to show off and um, sell and exhibit all of the things that they found so it, it really has that feel to it they definitely haven't lost it over the years despite all the huge finds and how much business they're doing these days but it's it's an excellent little museum going back to that area in the middle of the room so the big standout in that area is stan the t-rex and when they lost Sue, it was it must have been heartbreaking for them because that would have been the greatest centerpiece you can imagine. It was just huge. Stan isn't quite as big or quite as complete as Sue, but it is still an incredibly big and impressive T-Rex skeleton. So it's named Stan because of Stan Sackerson, who's the man who discovered it. And like Sue, it was also discovered in the Hell Creek Formation in South Dakota, and most of the T-Rex skeletons that have been found are from that Hell Creek formation. So in that centerpiece of the museum, there's a few other really impressive skeletons. There's a few Triceratops examples, and there's a myriad of other dinosaurs in there as well. One paleontologist told us that there are a lot of Triceratops skulls found around the place, but not a lot of bodies because since they were a prey animal a lot of them got eaten 
but the skulls were left all over the place, and they have quite a few ceratopsian skulls around as well. I think there was also an Acrocanthosaurus in there. I know that the Black Hills Institute sells models of it, and I think they have an example on display, which is really cool. And then if you're into the aquatic side of things, there's one of those plesiosaur-type, really long neck, you know, Loch Ness Monster-type-looking skeletons on display that sticks out way past that aquatic stage. So, really cool. There's also a a cool map in the museum, and it shows how many T-Rex fossils have been found in South Dakota and where they're currently housed. And there's at least five T-Rex specimens that are currently housed at the Black Hills Institute. That doesn't mean that they're all on display, as museums always do. You display certain specimens, other ones you're doing research on, or you're just storing for the time being. So the big one that's on display is Stan, but they have quite a few others there as well. So outside of the museum, they have a super friendly staff. We talked to the guy who was there for at least a half hour about how prolific the Black Hills Institute is with finding T-Rex fossils, just how good they have been at it, and a lot of other aspects of the museum. They really do have a cool history. The gift shop is almost as big as the museum, at least in square footage. It's not. It's obviously not as tall and good for displaying dinosaurs in. They're not wasting that space at all. They really jammed in as many skeletons and fossils and everything that they could in that area. But there's still a ton of cool stuff in the muse- in the gift shop. We probably spent almost as much time in there as we did in the museum itself. They have lots of little plush things, and then they have cool shirts that they made specifically for the Black Hills Institute, and posters. They have a big like PR kind of promotional push for Stan the T-Rex. You can get lots of things themed after Stan, so some of that stuff's pretty cool. We had to buy a couple shirts and posters before we left, because <laughs> there was too much cool stuff. They also sell little fossils and lots of uh, models as well, but most of their models are sold directly to other museums. Their main business is selling models and casts of T-Rex fossils. And some, they sell other ones too, like I mentioned, Acrocanthosaurus. They also invented a way to display their fossils. So I think part of the reason they sell so many is they don't have to ship in the individual pieces and then assemble it, you know, like a whole Lego set, you know, piece by piece, all of the bones. They sell them like partially assembled and then, but small enough that you can get them through doorways and all the small entrances you might have in a museum and then assemble it easier once it's in there. And they don't have to suspend it from the ceiling or anything. So it looks, when you're walking around the models that they sell, they look like they're actually standing, freestanding. Unlike a lot of these smaller dinosaur museums, they're actually open year round. If you go somewhere like Montana, Most of the museums are only open Memorial Day through Labor Day, which is, you know, the unofficial summer. And the Black Hills Institute does have summer hours where they're open longer and open every Sunday. In the fall, they're open Monday through Saturday, and then you can call in and maybe they'll be open on Sunday, maybe they won't. In the winter, they're closed on Sundays. And then in the spring, they've got that call in on Sundays, and they might be open. But that's actually pretty good for one of these museums. Like I was saying, a lot of them aren't open at all in the winter. So that's my summary of the Black Hills Institute. It's one of my top five favorite dinosaur museums that I've been to. 
So I strongly recommend that you go there, especially if you happen to be in the area, say you're going to see Mount Rushmore or you're at that Sturgis motorcycle rally that draws in a lot of people. It's pretty convenient. It's right downtown in a little city called Hill City. So if you're ever in Hill City or nearby, you have to go there. It's an awesome museum, and it's good to support some of these paleontologists who are doing lots of good work and digging up lots of fossils. So definitely worth a visit. This episode is brought to you by the Colorado Northwestern Community College, where you can become a part of the scientific process. As a participant, you can go on a real-life dinosaur dig, and you'll be helping to advance science and our understanding of the ancient world. What's really cool is that the fossilized bones that are being excavated, they're public, and they're going to be displayed and preserved for future generations to study and admire. Yeah, we've mentioned how that's a really important part of the scientific process, not just getting them out and describing them once, but keeping them and preserving them so that future questions and future scientists can take a look at those bones to answer new questions and validate results. And the site is special and also near and dear to me because it's in the Morrison Formation, known for the sauropods, Mm -hmm. of course, of the Jurassic time. And it represents one of the best bone beds ever found in the saltwash member. Yeah, the current interpretation is that the site was the result of a brachiosaurus sort of jamming up a river and then other carcasses piling up behind it. Oh, no. And that's how we got a bunch of different types of dinosaurs all fossilizing together. So, oh, no, but also, yay. (laughs) Good for us as scientists. Mm -hmm. And dinosaur enthusiasts. Yes. So there are two scheduled digs if you want to get involved with getting these bones out of the ground. You can go from July 6th to July 20th or from July 22nd to August 5th. Head over to cncc.edu slash dinodig. You'll get all of the details. Just make sure that you register online by May 31st. And again, that is cncc.edu slash dinodig, D-I-N-O-D-I-G. Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like updating turbines at one of our Indiana wind farms and producing more oil and gas with fewer operational emissions in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Our dinosaur of the day is Chengyu Raptor Yangyi, which means long-feathered robber. It's 125 million years old, and it could probably fly, but it was not a bird. Actually, what makes it really interesting is it is a non-avian dinosaur. It lived in the Cretaceous period in China. It was found in northeastern China in the Liaoning province, and Gang Han, a paleontologist from Bohai University, and his team, which included researchers from China, the U.S., and South Africa, described Chengyu Raptor in Nature Communications in July 2014. One of Chengyu Raptor's close relatives is Microraptor, and Microraptor had hind wings on its legs, which were basically elaborate tail feathers. But Chengyu Raptor was a lot bigger than Microraptor. Microraptor was about the size of a hawk, while Chengyu Raptor was closer to the size of an eagle. It was 4.3 feet long with tail feathers that were almost one foot long, and these are the longest feathers found on a non-avian dinosaur. And Chengyu Raptor had a 21-foot wingspan. But again, it was not a bird, 
The first birds actually descended from dinosaurs 25 million years earlier, and Changiraptor, like Microraptor, was part of this group called Dromaeosaurids. And we've talked about a Dromaeosaurid before, Dinochirus, which lived about 70 million years ago in the Gobi Desert. And for a long time, all scientists knew about it was that it had giant arms. Changiraptor was also not a pterosaur, which is another important distinction. Pterosaurs were a separate group that were known for their flying capabilities. So when I heard Changiraptor had a 21-foot wingspan, I was thinking, that is really huge. Compared to the Quetzalcoatlus, which was the largest flying creature that we've discovered so far in the dinosaur era, it wasn't that big because that pterosaur had a wingspan that almost reached 40 feet, which is just enormous. But compared to any modern flying bird, it would just be astonishingly big. So the biggest current wingspan of a bird is the wandering albatross, which flies really long distances over the ocean. So it has to be able to pick up on updrafts from the ocean, which means it needs a really big wingspan. It only has about a 10-foot wingspan on average, So this is more than twice as big as that, which is just pretty crazy. And that foot-long feather, too, to go with it is (laughs) pretty nuts. Changiraptor is a dromaeosaurid, but it's also part of the Microraptoria group, which is a group of predatory dinosaurs with four wings. And this means that they had such long feathers on their legs, it looked like they had a second set of wings. The discovery of Changiraptor may help to show how flight evolved though there was probably evolutionary convergence since there were birds 25 million years before Changiraptor. And Michael Habib, a flight expert and co-author of the study, who's from the University of Southern California, said that Changiraptor's long feathers and four wings may have been, quote, quite common amongst paravians, which is a group that includes birds and close non-avian relatives with feathers. So even though scientists think that Changiraptor may have been able to fly, it's not clear how the animal moved through the air. We've briefly mentioned it in another podcast, but there are quite a few things that are required for the bird lifestyle (laughs) that dinosaurs were already doing long before they could fly. So, for instance, the hollow bones that larger dinosaurs had to keep their weight down eventually became useful for birds to keep their weight down for flying. And the nesting behavior, which birds use to keep their young up in trees and nests away from predators, was also exhibited by dinosaurs down on the ground. And then, finally, with dinosaurs like the Changiraptor, The feathers obviously come in very handy when you're trying to fly, although they certainly weren't originally evolved with the intention of flight. Because you can't, animals don't evolve with a game plan of where they're going to be millions of years in the future. In other words, even though avian dinosaurs and their descendants, modern birds, use feathers for flight, the first feathers that appeared on dinosaurs couldn't have been used for flight because they wouldn't have been large enough or on wing structures, but they would have gone through a phase where they were either gliding or hopping or something that had an evolutionary advantage and then slowly evolved into full flight. So we're not sure exactly where Changiraptor was on the spectrum, but since it had so many feathers and they were so large and similar to modern birds, it's likely that it was more on the full flight end of the spectrum. 
Microraptorines, the group that Changyu Raptor was a part of, are closely related to birds, and scientists think they probably had a common raptor ancestor. Going back to how Changyu Raptor may have flown, some paleontologists thought it may have flown with a spread eagle or biplane posture, but that theory doesn't really fit with Changyu Raptor's anatomy because it probably wasn't very flexible in the hips like other theropods. Theropods is the broader group that it is a part of. Changyu Raptor probably had its legs directly under its body while in the air. However, Changyu Raptor may have climbed trees. They probably landed on the ground but spent a lot of time in trees. They could have used their limbs to fly through dense trees and they could turn and break fast and maybe quickly catch small prey. Again, Changyu Raptor is one of the biggest microraptorines, and before Changyu Raptor, one of the longest microraptorine tail feathers was only seven inches long compared to the one foot long feathers found on Changyu Raptor. It's also the biggest theropod with feathers on its hind wings, which are the lower hind limbs. And the specimen found was of an adult, not a juvenile. Changyu Raptor had feathers that covered its whole body, and its tail feathers may have helped it land safely because having the tail feathers really aids in the fine control of flight. When landing, you can use the tail feathers to slow the progression to the ground, and that would have helped Changyu Raptor prevent from getting injured when landing. Again, Changyu Raptor had four wings, or at least what looked like four wings, and it's not clear if these four wings was something only Microraptorines had or something that a common ancestor had. Because it was so large, it probably couldn't fly for long periods of time, and it may have glided from branch to branch of trees. The feathers found on its arm are not that well preserved, so researchers don't know exactly how it supported its weight in the air. Changyu Raptor's one-foot-long tail feathers make up about 30% the length of its skeleton, and its feathers may have been used for display. They could have been brightly colored. So even though Changyu Raptor probably could fly, according to Oxford University paleobiologist Roger Close, Changyu Raptor's discovery doesn't offer any big new insights on how flight evolved, since it had basically the same anatomy of other known four-winged theropods like Microraptor. Changyu Raptor weighed about 9 pounds and was 60% larger than the last Microraptorine found. And when it lived, its habitat was a broad peninsula with volcanoes, a moist forest with lots of conifer and ginkgos, and it had dry summers and cold winters. There were a lot of different carnivores and herbivores that lived there, and there were also a lot of birds, insects, primitive mammals, some flowering plants, as well as lakes full of fish, frogs, and salamanders, so pretty diverse. It's unclear exactly what Changyu Raptor ate, but... Uh, fish and bird bones have been found in its guts, so it may have eaten small prey, including birds, lizards, salamanders, fish, and small mammals. So to get in more about the group that Changyu Raptor belongs, again, it's part of Microraptoria. That name means small one who seizes, and uh, as you may guess from the name, most of the dinosaurs in Microraptoria are small, possibly the exception of just Changyu Raptor. They're a clad of dromaeosaurid theropods, they're the most primitive ones, and they lived 125 million years ago in China, and probably glided through trees. Again, they were usually small, adults were between 2.5 and, and 3 feet long and weighing up to a little over 2 pounds, and the first Microraptor was discovered in 2003. It was the one that weighed 2.2 pounds and had large limbs covered in feathers and tail feathers. 
Early birds, such as Archaeopteryx, also have long feathers on their hind limbs, like Microraptorines. But today's birds usually have bald legs and fly with just two wings instead of four. Changiraptor did look very bird-like, and interestingly, older dromaeosaurs seemed more bird-like than later ones. So Changiraptor was 125 million years old and looked pretty bird-like, but then Velociraptor was 75 million years old and seemed much less bird-like. Our fun fact of the day, the oldest known dinosaurs date back to 230 million years ago, which you probably know is the Triassic period. And they were found in Madagascar. A team of paleontologists, including researchers from UCSB, the University of California, Santa Barbara, which is Sabrina and my alma mater, discovered them back in 1999. Before they were found, the oldest known dinosaur was Eoraptor, which is 228 million years old, and the name means dawn thief. And that wraps up this episode of I Know Dino. If you like what you hear, please leave us a review on iTunes. Thanks for listening, and until next time. Good day.